Hello, welcome to the sound of the start of your week. How about that? Also mm. kind of the sound of the end of the EFL regular season. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair, involving myself, Ali Maxwell, my friend and colleague, George Ellick, very specifically this weekend, EFL on quests, George Ellick. What a day you had on Saturday, my friend, alongside Danny Cowley and Colin Murray. Talk me through it. Yeah, mate, it was class. Loved it. Um, Danny Cowley was over the moon to get the call up um, because he was going to have to miss it all to go to his daughter's debating final. Um, so when he got the call up, he was over the moon that rather than watching four hours of, of children's debating, he was able to um, <laughs> to, to watch all the action unfold. Uh, and Danny, uh, like myself and yourself, absolutely loves football. So we had a really fun time watching um, all of the championship action unfold. From 12:30 till 2:30, has to be said, you know, bit of a spoiler alert here for the for the podcast. It didn't really live up to any high expectations. Um, kind of the there was only one area that was of interest, which was which two teams were going to get into the playoffs. That became fairly evident fairly quickly. But League Two, wow, three till five League Two was totally mad. Um, where one. You know, it was all so cramped to the top end of the table. There was one permutation which going into, you know, I guess a week a week before the game, we probably would have said wasn't really even on the cards. Suddenly in the morning of the game, people started to be like, hmm, could Bristol Rovers overturn a five-goal deficit? And then I'll leave what happened for later in case people don't know, but it was pretty mad. The permutation to end all permutations in League Two. Yeah, not going to lie, because of that weekend and because we have some more playoff action to preview, this is going to be a busy show. Very much a focus on stuff that mattered, the playoffs, uh, and first things first, George, in 10 days' time, at 7pm at the Leicester Square Theatre, Not the Top 20 will be live in the flesh for the very first time. We're incredibly excited about it. And after announcing Jed Wallace as our guest last week, I would like to reveal our second guest. Uh, I'm going to reveal it by asking you a question, George. What is the okay. French word for happiness? Bon. No. Bonheur. 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 <laughs> and it gives me great bonheur, ah. my friend, to announce Monsieur. the manager of Cambridge United, Mark Bonner, as our second guest for Not the Top 20 Live. <laughs> what do you think about that, my friend? I think it's so exciting. Um, he is someone who uh, his meteoric rise in the EFL uh, is something that um, we've absolutely loved um talking about over the last couple of years uh we'll be able to chat about the fact that we might have had his cambridge side finishing 24th <laughs> uh in our uh, 1 to 24s spoiler alert they did not finish 24th um you know it's been a, a nice way to tie off the season after a cambridge fan won our competition at the start of the campaign uh and we were able to gift him a season ticket i believe sam will be in attendance as well amazing we can Get him up on stage to give Mark a hug, maybe. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's really exciting and it's just pretty cool for us. Not only that we're playing a, a West End show for one night, but also the, the calibre of guests we're getting on. Yeah, it's great. The whole idea was to provide an, an evening which was, of course, entertaining and hopefully will tick all of the Not The Top 20 boxes from over the last six years. But most importantly, that those in attendance who, who have paid for a ticket will will leave feeling like they've enjoyed themselves and learned something. Uh, and in Jen and in Mark, we certainly have two people who will be uh, imparting a lot of knowledge and wisdom and all of the above. More to reveal next week. 
But surely Jed Wallace and Mark Bonner are good enough to get you to buy your ticket and join us at the Leicester Square Theatre uh, on May the 19th at 7pm. In particular, there are three pairs of seats that have to go before the end of today because they are killing me. Uh, they're the only <laughs> seats available in the first, what, eight or nine or ten rows. And they are very specifically F6 and 7. I absolutely hate those two seats. I want them gone. G2 and 3 down the sides, very close to one of the bars. There are two <laughs> bars on each flank. And H21 and 22. So please, just to do me a favour more than anything else, could someone snap those tickets up? Thank you very much. Buy them. Link in the description of this podcast. It's in our bio on Twitter. Or just Google Not The Top 20 Live and follow the link. Please, please get involved. We cannot wait. We cannot wait to see you there. Next week. Next week. Jesus Christ. Okay. We've got some work to do. (laughs) Yeah, and we've got a lot of football to talk about now. We're not going to spend too much time on the weekend matches that that took place outside of the top six of the championship, the top, what, 10 of League Two or uh, outside of the League One playoffs. That's where we're going to be focused. Um, If you are interested in a discussion about terrestrial EFL football highlights, in in particular, EFL on Quest uh, and its final regular season show. We've both got a lot of thoughts and lots that we'd like to say. We're going to do that at the end of this show, the last five or ten minutes or so, because we want to talk football first. We'll start in the championship, uh, where with the top two and the bottom three all sorted already, it was all about the playoffs, George, and in the end, as you said, nothing changed. Neutrals, we'll call this something of an anti-climax, George, but for Sheffield United and Luton fans, it was anything but. It was about them winning... They both did that. First, Blades smashing Fulham 4-0 at Bramall Lane. What what happened, George? I called this very wrong. Apologies to those um, betting show listeners. I I thought Fulham would provide a pretty stern test um, for Sheffield United, but they didn't at all. I mean, having said that, there were times where Wes Fodderingham made some important saves. Players, player of the season this campaign. I think when Gibbs White and Njai and, and other players have had such good campaigns, we can often forget about the keeper uh, with 18 clean sheets in, in 22 champion, 32 championship games. That is absolutely mad. Um, but he, but yeah, realistically, Blades were just just far better than Fulham. Um, came into it with the kind of intensity that we saw from them in the second half against QPR. Uh, once they went ahead, uh, there was no dropping in, sitting off and, and trying to defend their lead. Uh, they c- c- continue to send men forward and they're playing without a striker at the moment um, with Billy Sharp injured. Paul Heckenbottom is, is happy to uh, invest some faith in a couple of players and Gibbs White and Jai, whose career probably won't be spent playing up front, but quite clearly their career will be spent playing at a higher level than the championship. And when you have players whose technical ability and movement is so good, it doesn't really matter that they're not strikers per se. You know, it's one of those things where people always try and pigeonhole players into certain positions uh, as if they are inherently defined by that. But actually, when you've got attacking midfielders like Gibbs White and and Njai, who are as good as they are, they possess a lot of the qualities needed to be effective frontmen. And that's what we're seeing here. So after a run of performances where I'm not necessarily convinced Blades were playing very well, um, and going into half time against QPR at Loftus Road uh, last Friday or the Friday before last, losing 1 0, it's been three exemplary halves of football under some serious pressure. Uh, and, I, and I do think that going into the playoffs, the shift in terms of performances and I guess almost belief and intensity as well within the Sheffield United side is massive. Uh, you think of Nottingham Forest 
coming into the playoffs off the back of, you know, they haven't won a game in three, have they, with a few injury issues as well. Um, obviously, you know, the, the win on, uh, we're going to get onto it in a second, but they would have liked to have won the game on Saturday and it was a late goal that, that prevented them from doing so. But it kind of feels to me like there's, if you if you imagine that there are trajectory lines charting the progress uh, of all four teams going into the playoffs, it would kind of feel to me like Blades has had quite a sharp incline uh, over the last week or so, whereas Forrest's maybe at the very best plateaued. What a lovely way of painting a visual picture for us. And you know what? It's landed with me. I know exactly what you're saying. That that fourth goal they scored early in the second half, finished off by Ender Stevens after sort of four first-time passes, some of them through the line, some of them nice square balls and tapped in by Stevens. It was pure FIFA uh, stuff, really. It was, uh, it was fantastic. What a day. We'll be previewing their playoff semi-final shortly. But the other big result... In this discussion was Luton 1, Reading 0, George. The Hatters started strong, early chance on Cameron Jerome in particular. And let's be very clear, they they were on top in this game. They were uh, making the running, I think it's fair to say. I also thought they were kind of making slightly heavy weather of it until one of the comedy goals of the season in one of the biggest moments of the season. Harry Cornick doing a... Well, it, it really depends on your age, what you call this. I call this a, a Dion Dublin, mm. uh, where you stand behind the goalkeeper and when they roll it onto the floor out of their hands, you run around pantomime style, nick it off them and slot it in. It was Harry Corn nicking it off Neuland, the goalkeeper <laughs> for Reading. Uh, 1-0, that's how it stayed. So uh, Luton make the playoffs. Talk about the achievement of that in just a second. But the game itself, uh, what did you make of it and that moment in particular? Yeah, it was. It kind of went from being fairly nervy to being a bit of a a non-event um, because in the second half, Reading did have a few opportunities to um, make it one all, but that was at a time where Luton were, were fairly confident in knowing that um, it didn't. It wouldn't have really mattered uh, if Luton had lost this game; they'd have still would have come sixth. Uh, so, what what could have been, and especially after the seven nil defeat, a pretty nervy day for Luton fans. Um, it ended up being a bit of a celebration of the season whilst whilst the game kind of unraveled into nothing. I, I think Cornick, you know, at the time of Cornick scoring the goal, things were still somewhat in the balance with Borough and you know Millwall were level at the time, Borough were behind, but with a whole half of football to come, there was no um you know, the the way that they were beaten was no sure thing at that time. Um and I think Cornick deserves massive, massive praise for the goal personally um you know you call it a comedy goal and it was because you don't see it too often and nylon nylon looks pretty stupid but when in a game where you basically need a win in order to secure at the time to secure a playoff berth and you're not playing particularly well and it's quite nervy um games you know promotion seasons can be defined by by single moments and for Cornick to have the presence of mind to try it um and then the kind of stealth and the ability i'd say as well you know it's not it's not a, it's not an open goal once you do that you still have to actually have to pull it off um i thought it was brilliant and it kind of is shows what nathan jones and his luton team are all about where it's um finding ways to maybe redress the balance with with clubs you know you, you look at these two sides themselves you know reading are, are, are currently embroiled in well they had a point deduction this season there's been talk over the last 24 hours about another points deduction probably next season but feasibly this season again uh, due to overspending up against a Luton side whose whose um, wage bill is is one of the third, fourth, fifth lowest in the division. Um, cut their cloth accordingly and have been very, very smart in terms of the way that they recruit. And I kind of feel like Cornick finding just a very, very fine margin um, 
finding that extra means of scoring when they're making heavy weather at seeing off a side who are, who are pretty low down the the table is um you know it's it, it's just what they're all about basically and it's it's one of those quite funny ones where because at this stage of the season the EFL happily so gets a little more uh, coverage from the the mainstream media shall we say uh, and particularly when there's a final day like that when there are no Premier League games to clash with it and I was listening to the radio uh, for quite a lot of Saturday obviously I watched the game as well and and quite rightly so I, I want to make this very clear there is a lot being discussed about the achievement itself and tracking Luton's rise uh, from the well fall from the Premier League or the top flight I should say down to non-league and then back up again and the incredible story that it is now I don't know about you but I find find it always slightly strange when this all happens partly because I don't mean to blow our own trumpet but obviously we've been talking about Luton every week for six years practically so we really have kind of lived the this rise Mm. you know week to week month to month rather than suddenly recognizing it at the end of a 46 game campaign Um, but let's make sure we do mark this uh, whatever happens from this point Uh, Luton Town are an example of a club who over the last six season and there are more than than one of them have done things in an incredible manner on and off the field and when you mix it all together the alchemy of of what's happening at this club has translated to points being picked up on the pitch in a way that that George has been quite sensational and with a club when you look at budgets, when you look at playing staff, you look at managers, whatever it might be, we all have an idea of, yeah, we, we know what they could achieve if they put together a 10 out of 10 season, but you have a pretty good idea of, of what the ceiling might be. For Luton, they've consistently smashed through it, basically, for, for four or five years now. Yeah, well, I mean, they have under Nathan Jones. That's the amazing thing about this, is that the only period where you can probably point to them um, struggling is when Jones moved to, to Stoke and we had Graham Jones in charge for a, for a brief period. Um, it's, it is remarkable what he's done and how he's taken them um, just forever progressing. And, you know, even if they fall short this year, which, you know, I think it's... We're going to come on to it. We're going to come unlikely. on to it. Unlikely. I know I'm not going to give it anyway, <laughs> but even by like the definition of the playoffs and you look at the betting odds and stuff like that, you know, it's, it is unlikely still. Um, that Luton are going to be a Premier League team next season. That's not to say it won't be the case. Um, but given what we've seen from Nathan Jones's Luton sides over the last six years, given how smart they've been with recruitment as well, you, you even look at players like Alan Campbell, you know, brought in from Motherwell in the in the summer. Aye, she's not bad, thanks. Could be a could be a, a Premier League footballer next season. You know, they they are able to recruit players. Um, for a, a, a snip of what their rivals are paying for players who immediately step up and improve in their team. And that is that means that if they do fall short here, if they lose to Huddersfield in the, in the playoff semis or if they get to the final and lose there, this isn't, uh, so long as Jones is there, I see absolutely no reason why this will be a, a flash in the pan um, season for them. Uh, and also given the injury issues they've had all campaign as well, I've mentioned in the past, I think that kind of has almost played into their hands in a way and I still stand by that. Um, but there's more to come. I don't see why there, there wouldn't be more to come. Well, we're going to be there on Friday uh, working for, for Sky Sports in the build-up of the first leg of Luton against Huddersfield at the Kenny. And 
I haven't been that excited about any piece of work for a long time. So we're looking forward to to getting under the skin of, of Luton Town uh, in just a few days' time. Also, we should, we should we are obliged, I think, to mention a great friend of the pod, Jay Sosick. You've just spoken about uh, Luton's incredibly canny recruitment, and Jay will be the first to point out that he is uh, a part of a recruitment team and not necessarily the only one, but in the same way as Alan Campbell has been a part of an amazing Luton side this season, and Elijah Adebayo was signed from League Two and went straight into the first team pretty much and is, is racking up the goals this season and his value has increased probably 20 times over from what they paid for him for Walsall. It is worth pointing out and giving a nod to our great mate Jay, Blades Analytic, as he was known on Twitter uh, for for being part of this incredible journey and another amazing story just as an individual uh, in a, a team and a club full of them. So congratulations. There's more to come. We'll see you guys on Friday. Um, before we, we preview the games, let's just pay off the fact that Hull and Forrest drew 1-1. Doesn't really tell the story here. Uh, Forrest made a ton of changes. Steve Cooper understandably wanting to rest their somewhat exhausted uh, and fairly bruised stars. Jed Spence, Scott McKenna, Ryan Yates and Brennan Johnson were all rested here, albeit uh, some of them came off the bench. And and it was nil-nil until the changes were made. Surridge winning a penalty scored by Johnson to put Forrest 1-0 up and to put them at that moment in third place. This was as the, as the full time was approaching, we thought that goal meant... Forest would play against Luton and Huddersfield would finish fourth and play against fifth place Sheffield United. And then almost unfathomably, but in vintage EFL fashion, Louis Coyle, the Hull right back, swung in a left-footed cross in swinger, which missed everyone uh, and nestled into Samba's far corner. And that meant it was all change again. Uh, And we have the fixtures that we have. Huddersfield finishing third because they beat Bristol City at home, Harry Toffolo, their left wing back, scoring his fifth goal in seven games and taking it brilliantly with some fantastic footwork to engineer the space in the shot. Huddersfield have only lost two of their last 26 league games and they made the playoffs a few weeks ago and we spoke at length then about the achievement and what it's meant. So we don't need to go as in-depth maybe to mark it as we have done with Luton. But let's not forget that this is actually an achievement that was less expected and less predicted than Luton's own achievement. You've used the line a few times, George, this season that by the start of the campaign, Luton were such dark horses that they had turned bay. Uh, well, <laughs> Huddersfield were were not in the race or not being spoken of as being a contender in the race at all. Certainly not a dark horse, more like a candidate for relegation. And yet we will see two more games at least of Huddersfield Town this season. So let's preview them. Sheffield United against Nottingham Forest, Saturday 3pm and then Tuesday 7.45pm and Luton against Huddersfield, Friday 7.45pm, followed by Monday 7.45pm. Let's start with Sheffield United and and Nottingham Forest, George. I I am going to put my hands up here. I am happy to put forward my stances and my predictions, but I find this one almost impossible to call. Uh, If you look at the Betfair Exchange and the Sportsbook, you know, it's reflected that while Nottingham Forest are slightly favoured here, uh, the odds reflect that the overall playoff winner is expected to come from this fixture. They are considered to be the two strongest teams uh, out of the four. What are your thoughts on the Forest-Sheffield United matchup? Yeah, it's very difficult. A couple of weeks ago, there's there's no doubt in my mind who would have been the team I'd favour to go through here um, in terms of, of Forest just being a, a better team. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the show that they've 
uh, failed to win three games in a row. It's two games in a row. Um, it was the away games at Bournemouth and, and at Hull um, are the only two. And, and we have to, of course, um, caveat the, well, both of them, I would say, to an extent, because um, Forrest have done incredibly well to maintain a high level of form despite injuries to key players. You know, we've said plenty of times since January that part of the reason why Forrest have been so good um, since January is because Keating Davis has offered something completely different going forward. Uh, they lost him. They lost Graben. Um, Sam Sarge has obviously done very, very well. But um, in my mind, still, they are weaker without those players who are out uh, as it stands at the moment. Um, and there's no suggestion, as far as I can see, that they'll be fit and back, um, at least for the first leg or, or for the playoff campaign at all. Uh, and I think, in a way, it suits Blades. Um, well, I think it does suit Blades to be to be home in the first leg. You know, we, we've seen in the League One playoff semi-finals uh, that we've seen so far um you know for those who are listening to this on tuesday this might age quite badly because it tonight it is it is uh, sheffield wednesday against against sunderland but um the home side won the first leg at league one with wickham winning 2-0 the home side then won at sunderland winning 1-0 then the away side uh, were on top and beat um wickham 1-0 in mk dons which wasn't enough to go through so as i said earlier given the, the very good three halves of football that we've seen from Blades, given that the, the technically gifted key players for them, Njai, Gibbs-White, Berger, all come into this playing very, very well. And Forrest come in off the back of A, the disappointment of not being able to to, to kind of get the points needed or even point needed at, at the vitality to take the promotion race into final day. And the disappointment of, you know, because even though Steve Cooper started with a a weakened team. They needed to win that game. And the fact, if you watched Brennan Johnson's penalty, the fact that he scores a penalty in the 92nd minute in front of the away fans, rips his shirt off and celebrates with them, shows you how important I think it, it was to the Forest fans and Forest players and the conversations that had taken place behind the scenes that they avoided Blades and got themselves a, a semi against Luton. And that didn't happen either. So I, having kind of really been with Forest, and there's no denying that Forest have been at the very worst, the second best team in the championship since Steve Cooper came in, arguably the best um, since he came in over the course of, of months. You know, it's a big enough sample size. I would have thought I'd, be, I'd have been with Forrest, but there's something nagging me now. There's something in my mind that's telling me that this Blades team come in to this game off the back of their own poorer run of performances, but in a position playing a style and a formation that is really clicking with them. Um, and playing with an intensity that in a, a playoff campaign at home in the first leg could see them put themselves in a very, very strong position going into the second leg. So I am leaning very, very slightly. It's, it's by no means a, a strong uh, view, but I, I think Blades... If you want to use the word momentum, you can use it. <laughs> you've been you've been no, flir- no. you were flirting with it for about it's, five it's, minutes it's, it's, it's not necessarily momentum though it's not <laughs> it, it's more like a, a tangible shift in terms of what Sheffield United have done over the last 10 days uh, and arguably similar for for Forest as well um I guess maybe you could use momentum in terms of maybe the, the wind coming out of Forest's sails a little bit mm. I think I think, and we've done this for quite a few years now, and you learn a little bit, a little bit about yourself and your your playoff preview proclivities, and reading a lot of other people's and seeing a lot of other people's opinions, 
and particularly a lot of people that I uh, respect a lot and whose opinions I think hold a lot of weight, I I seem to value the immediate results, let's say, of match day 46 and 45 a little less than some people. I think that's become quite clear over time. Uh, I, and again, this is just, this is just putting my finger up in the air and, and, and seeing what happens. And I'm not saying that this is based on any sort of uh, expertise, but I, just my feeling about the psychology of it all is that, is that in even in the space of a few days, as it is between Saturday and then playing the next game on Saturday, the stuff that's happened on match day 45 or 46, I think can be got past by a group of players, by a club and a manager a little bit quicker than I think some other people think. And who knows what is true? I certainly don't because I have never been in a position of being within a club heading into the playoffs. But um, I, I just say that to sort of, uh, that's more of a general point, I guess. But I suppose it does have an impact here when I'm thinking about Forest and Sheffield United. I'm probably less concerned about some of the things that you've said about Forrest. Um, but I also find it very difficult to, to call and because they're so well matched up and that's what makes it so exciting, you know, in terms of styles. They're both playing a, a 3-5-2 type. Uh, they're both very happy to build possession from the back. Uh, the ball-playing defenders, for sure. Um, but be, but both equally pretty happy to, pay, to play fast and, and play direct if necessary. I would say, particularly with the personnel currently available to both teams, Forrest maybe have the slight advantage on that very specific front, playing a little bit quicker and longer, and certainly probably playing in transition as well with, with runners in behind like Johnson that Sheffield United lack. But again, that's just a small advantage, I would say. Uh, both of them like to build up out wide with the wing backs, but neither are hugely keen to just sling in crosses and hope for the best. Both of them lean towards more intricate combination play and working the ball inside in the final third or trying to work cutbacks from the byline. They are two teams that play good stuff and I'm excited to see how that works out on the pitch. In terms of the, the personality and the psychology as I perceive it, again, I think it's hard to lean towards one or the other. You know, both teams have picked up a ton of points over the last few months. Forest, the, the best team in terms of points returning the whole division since January the 1st. Uh, both are in a great spot with managers that have complete authority, complete devotion from their players and the fans as well. Um, Forest have their incredible cup exploits from this season to point to as evidence that they can handle these types of matches. While Sheffield United have the added edge of like, yeah, quite a lot of us have played two years of Premier League football. So this sort of stuff isn't really going to phase us too much. And I just love this setup. I just love all of this mixing together and the the anticipation of it all. Uh, lastly, in terms of star names, doesn't get much more exciting for me. You have great leaders at the back, like Worrell and Egan. You have two goalkeepers who have had excellent campaigns in Samba and Fodderingham, but who probably aren't immune from the championship goalkeeper curse, which finds uh, every goalkeeper at some point. And then you have, well, on the Forest side, to name a few, Spence, Garner, Johnson... Uh, and for Blades, Berger and Gibbs White and Njai as well. Uh, it's so, so exciting. I think as a team, I believe Forrest have a tiny bit more about them, particularly going forward um, on the break and in possession, just slightly better. And so that's why I probably lean towards Forrest here. It's a shame that they only have one striker fit between them out of about eight or nine combined uh, because that would have made it even better. But let's see how we go. Uh, interesting quirk about the, the four playoff teams in general. 
if you just make it a mini league of league performance against the other teams involved, none of them have done that well. Huddersfield the best with three wins, two draws and a defeat. They beat Forest and Sheffield United away from home, both slightly smashy and grabby. Certainly the Forest one, I remember <laughs> being very much so. They beat Luton at home, two, two nil all draws and a home defeat to Forest. Sheffield United, one win, one defeat and four draws against these other three teams. At Forest, one win out of six, three draws, two defeats. And before you bring up the Houghton era that started the season, they didn't play any matches against these teams in that time. In fact, their first game against a fellow playoff team was Stephen Reed's caretaker win at Huddersfield. Uh, and Luton in those six games, one win, three draws, two defeats, only scored one goal in six games against playoff contenders. And that was that recent game against Forest where their goal was a penalty for a, for a handball. Uh, otherwise, it was three nil-nil draws, two away defeats, and a one-nil win against Forest with a penalty. Let's move on to, to Luton against Huddersfield, George. As a matchup. what are you thinking? I think firstly we have to, you know, it's 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 so easy to get wrapped up in the first semi, and as you say, the the, the chances are, according to the bookmakers at least, you know, the winner will come from here. But these are two sides who are very much there on merit. I think Huddersfield, as I said on Quest, Huddersfield Town fans, I think will probably get quite frustrated with, um, hopefully not this podcast because I'm saying this now, but the way that these playoffs are going to be covered in the wider media over the last in the next week or so because they finished third. Um, as you say, they've got the best record against these sides. Um, they picked up the most points of any of these four teams over the course of the season. Um, they beat Luton at home comfortably 2-0 a couple of weeks ago. Um, and they're probably going to be treated in this conversation about who's going to go up to the Premier League as um, you know outsiders um, because of the strength of the other two. And and I think that is, you know, Luton's um, deficiencies, can we say, I think are more exposed than Huddersfield's. You know, we saw them go to, to Craven Cottage the other day and be completely obliterated by, uh, you know, the best team in the division in a way that I'm not sure Huddersfield could be. I think Huddersfield is so well drilled. They are so good both in and out of possession and the way, ironically, the biggest frustration that Huddersfield Town fans had with Carlos Corbran last season was his in-game management. I do not think there is a better team in terms of both protecting leads and chasing games in Huddersfield this season, bar none in the championship. They have been so good because not only are they able to control the game in possession and employ a press, uh, when chase, well, you know, when trying to get ahead in the game, they're also incredibly good at being compact and springing teams on the counter as well. Think back to that Borough game, where they it was such a massive playoff game, and they went ahead, and they just dropped in. They made it unbelievably frustrating for for Borough. Borough couldn't really find any 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 space in the final third, and even though Borough then had eighty percent possession, it was Huddersfield who, who looked like the team who were going to get the third goal, and that makes them a really difficult uh, proposition in in a playoff campaign because if you've got a team who who are who are happy both in and out of possession, who are happy having territory or happy dropping out, then there's no real, you know, we saw last night similar with, with Wickham, where in the first leg against MK Dons, Wickham didn't let MK play. They were in the home tie, incredibly intense in the way that they looked to, to press MK and, and didn't let them play their own game uh, and were attritional in terms of attack. And then in the second leg, yes, David Stockdale was man of the match and deserves immense credit for getting them there, but they then completely switched it up and were able to, to employ that low block to a, a pretty devastating effect. So, and that's how I see Huddersfield here, but maybe with a bit more onus on, on the technical ability of players. Don't be fooled by 
the fact that you look at their side and um, there maybe aren't the big names in there who you uh, that you're going to get with Forest and with Sheffield United as well. Um, uh, you only have to look at Carol Iting, who I think played on Saturday. Hey, was... we had an we had a rare Iting sighting. Yeah, and you know Iting was was their best player on loan last season. Um, I would say under Carlos Corbran, he came back to the club in January. We were pretty impressed. We were pretty excited. Just can't get a game, and that is that shows how strong this side are. And at times this season, I'd have said the Huddersfield um, squad lacked some depth. That's not the case now because when players came out, other players came in who basically made themselves undroppable. You look at uh, Jonathan Russell as, as being the the the, the biggest um, example of that, where a very huge, a large man, <laughs> a large example of a man, and he's now a key player. So I think Huddersfield are big players here. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to do the, the whole Luton shtick again, but, you know, Luton, are, they're the ultimate underdogs. They are the side who are going to make it, you know, who are going to thrive when when they're written off. And in games where they aren't expected um, to do great things, I think is where they come up trumps. And, and it was an amazing stat that I think Colin told me on Saturday about how in the eight games that, that Luton have lost, um, have most recently lost. They've won the next game. Um, it just shows immense belief to bounce back. And again, over, over a two-legged semi-final, that could be important as well. I think it's going to be so interesting uh, with, with that massive prize at the end of it. Um, but I, yeah, I'm leaning towards Huddersfield, Huddersfield. That's for sure. I'll start with Luton. And first, I want to say that, as discussed, there is so so much to admire. And I hope that's been made clear all season on this podcast. But I, I am unfortunately going to start with a negative. And that is that in recent weeks, I have found Luton's attacking play specifically to be quite hard to watch. Uh, Nathan Jones is so tight-lipped on injuries, understandably so, that it's very difficult to know who will be available here. But having suffered the amount of injuries that they've that they have suffered, and we've spoken about how you know they've had back th- they've had a back three of like all fullbacks at times, and it's worked, mm. and they have maintained a shape, a structure, a press that has kept games very low margin and allowed them to pick up points. That has all gone very well and functioned very well throughout, I would suggest. The the attacking play is where it, it just has suffered. I don't see them playing going forward as well as they did in the first half of the campaign. And whether it's fatigue and whether it's injuries, whether it's something else, whether it's a mixture of lots of things, their attacking play has dropped off a lot. So unless something changes massively there, which I'm not sure that it will, these games are going to be turned into a real fight. Uh, I think that's the best way of Luton Town winning it. And I think the best way of them winning it is, as you suggested, to attack on Friday at home at Kenilworth Road and try and use the energy in the stadium and try and catch Huddersfield cold uh, because when Luton have scored first in the championship this season 24 times in their 46 games they've won 20 of the 24 they've drawn three and they've lost one and clearly to take uh, a a victory even if it was 1-0 you know rather than two to Huddersfield would be huge there I, I really do believe that the only problem is George as good as Luton are when scoring first You've mentioned Huddersfield and why you admire them 
and how they respond to going behind. It's funny that you said that because I was going to say how good I think they are at nil-nil at the start of games and in, in avoiding going behind. You know, uh, they've only conceded first 13 times in 46 league games, Huddersfield. Only Fulham have conceded first fewer times. And in four of those 13 times, they came back and won the game. So they are not a great opponent for a team that, that wants to start fast and try and catch them cold. I think they are immune to a cold, very much unlike me, who is currently suffering my fourth cold of 2022. <laughs> uh, whatever Corboran, whatever supplements he takes and vitamins he puts into these teams is what I, I need. Because how many times have we said over the last few months, he is a master at setting up his team for each specific occasion, each specific uh, opposition. So they don't create a high volume of chances, Huddersfield, in open play. They're not the perfect team. Of course they're not. Uh, but they seem to have a knack for doing so at the right times. And they seem to have a general composure and a calmness about them that very much comes across in how often they seem to take the chances when they do come and how they manage games once they go ahead. For all of Luton's strengths, I don't see a similar level of composure in the final third, a composure in front of goal, and I think that that's the sort of thing that could make a big difference in these games. So I'm picking Huddersfield to win the semi-final. Uh, and I am I think I'm going to pick them to win the whole thing, George. Now, part of that is because I don't really know who's going to go through from the other semi-final. And I, I think I have a stronger steer on this one. So I think Huddersfield will be playing at Wembley. I just don't really know who they'll be playing against. But given my admiration for Corberan, given how strongly I think they are brilliant at nil-nil, and more than happy to play a reactive game plan, which they likely will, whether it's Blades or Forest, if they play against them in the final. Given their, their incredible spirit and tenacity, which means they've only been beaten twice in 26 games. Given their huge set-piece threat, which we know can, can be a big factor in games that are played on the margins. Um, and the way that they manage the emotion of big games, or, or how I've seen them do so over the last few months. So it, it's Huddersfield for me, which... If I'm honest, when I woke up this morning and got to work prepping this show and, and previewing these playoffs, I'm not sure I would necessarily have said that. So it's been a, an interesting exercise. Um, are you going to stick your neck on the line and, and pick a playoff winner? I don't disagree with what you're saying. I think maybe at the at the prices, you know, this isn't a betting show, of course, um, but it is sponsored by the Betfair Sportsbook. And, and looking at their, you know, their odds, they have Huddersfield as the third favourites at 3-1. to one. Uh, I'd much rather back Huddersfield at 3-1. to one. The Nottingham Forest at thirteen to eight, but I still think Forest are probably more likely than Huddersfield. If I had to pick the likeliest winner, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's between Forest and Sheffield United, and, and I'd probably just lean towards Blades. I think at the moment Forest are the favourites, and I think after the first leg between Forest and Blades, I think Blades will be favourites. Well. You've never seen an appetite wetter than mine right now. Wet. That is some phrase. Uh, let's move on. Uh, some some kind of non-playoff championship chat. Uh, Borough really, really imploded at Preston. Obviously had to win to have any chance of making the playoffs. And instead they lost 4-1. And the game was gone pretty early on. I mean, whether... Emil Reese, we should say, was excellent, had some fun here. Whether by design, George, or just because this is how the game played out without Wilder meaning it to... Borough seemed to make the match a really open shootout, kind of gung-ho and leaving gaps from the first minutes. And I kind of understand that, you know, they had to go after it. But there's 90 minutes in a game. I don't think you need to do it straight away. And against this opponent, and very particularly against Archer and Reese, the strikers for Preston, that was just playing massively into their hands. Reese 
absolutely loved it. Um, running into space is what he loves to do, and and, and that was an issue for Borough. So disappointing end to, to a good season for them, and I think there's probably, when the dust settles, quite a lot of excitement for next season under Chris Wilder. Uh, as for Preston, they, they finish uh, 13th on, on 64 points. Last season, they finished 13th as well on 61, but 12 of them had come in, in those kind of fun-time Frankie McAvoy wins at the end of the season. We didn't really buy that as being transferable into this season, uh, and it wasn't, of course, and he didn't last very long. I, I, I feel differently this time around. I feel like with some nifty moves in the summer transfer market, probably be feeling quite good about PNE moving into next season with Ryan Lowe at the helm. Uh, it feels all round like a good fit for me a few months in. It's not been perfect, of course, but I'm feeling positive about it. Uh, wing-back recruitment is going to be crucial for them. Uh, and he might need to get a bit creative low, like he did with Grant and Edwards, the wing-backs at Argyle, because all across the EFL with the current 3-5-2 or 3-at-the-back craze, wing-back recruitment is going to be... Uh, well, it's in high demand and potentially lower supply, shall we say. Uh, Bournemouth beat Millwall 1-0. Again, Millwall, it was kind of all eyes on them. Could they win at the Vitality and give themselves a chance? No was the answer. Um, big Kiefer with a big moment and a big contribution for the second time in a week. Um, Bournemouth did achieve promotion, George. Last time we spoke on Monday, we were uh, we were piling on the pressure, weren't we? I said I thought Forrest was we're going to beat them. Forrest did not beat them. Uh, Bournemouth... Managed that second half very well and scored a very clever, innovative goal, which I don't think was actually a planned routine, but rather quick thinking uh, from Billing and Kiefer Moore. And so we wave goodbye to, to Bournemouth, George. How do you pre-see uh, their season, their promotion <laughs> achieved under Scott Parker, his second championship promotion as a manager? Yeah, very impressive. Um, that's two full seasons for Parker and two promotions this time uh, automatically. Um, defined maybe by two uh, very clever set pieces, uh, one in the playoff final a couple of years ago, and then of course against against Forest. Um, but that Forest game uh, at the end, you know, wouldn't have mattered if results had gone the way they did. Not they would have done on final day. Um, you know, they've been they've been very good. There's no denying, given the the team at their disposal. You know, when we when we're talking about certainly Huddersfield and Luton and their playoff chances, and you compare the squads that they've got compared to Bournemouth. Um, Bournemouth should really be finishing in that top two. Um, Solanke's had a magnificent season. It's probably gone a little bit under the radar because of Metro season, but you know normally that is probably the kind of campaign that can win you um, the Player of the Season award in, in the Championship. Um, the uh, defensively, there have been um, it's been quite strange to see how many defensive duos that they've had over the course of the campaign. You know, starting with. Cook and Kelly, and then becoming Kelly and Cahill, then becoming Kelly and Phillips. Um, it, you know, it, it's obviously worked. Uh, it's not necessarily ideal. I'm sure Scott Parker will be hoping they go into next season, maybe with Phillips and and, and Kelly again, because um, it seems like Nat Phillips's future at Liverpool is probably um, not going to be a particularly fruitful one. So, um, yeah, I mean, they, they've been very good. I, I kind of, I think there's a set of circumstances where they may possibly have got closer. I'm, I'm really intrigued to see how. You know, the breakthrough stars of this season. You know, I still remember when me and you went on, on opening day to the Vitality for that game against Baggies. And we looked at the team sheet and it was Jordan Zumura at left back and Jade Nanty at left wing. And we were like, wow, there's still so much work hey, to be done on this what squad. About, what about the big switch Kilkenny and Travers in goal as well? Yeah. Uh, and, um, and those players have kind of, over the course of the season become you know gone from being youngsters to being really exciting prospects who are probably going to be playing a fair bit in the Premier League next season the key for me is what Scott Parker do Scott Parker won promotion with a with a Fulham side with plenty of really good uh championship talent at Fulham went up and basically replaced all of them 
does he do the same with the likes of Anthony, Zamura, um, Christie, all these players who have been so central to their promotion this season. Do Bournemouth trust them as they did when they went up you know, a decade or so ago? Um, you know, those players continue to be the the players that Eddie Howe used in the Premier League for, for years to come. Does Parker do the same? Or do they look to recruit heavily and, uh, and replace those players? That is, given that it didn't work last time for Parker, um, I'm intrigued to see w- what their strategy is over the summer. Huge congratulations to Cherries and their fans. I'd like to just talk about Kiefer Roberto Francisco Moore. I've not, I do, I do make up a lot of names. I've not made up that name. That is his full name, uh, because uh, a lot of people who uh, listen to us talking nonsense during some of the uh, lockdowns that you may remember uh, might remember a series called EFL Completed that we did uh, with the Athletic, uh, where we talked about players or talked to players rather uh, who had played in all three EFL divisions and then made the the hashtag promised land of the Premier League. Uh, and it was a fascinating series and I absolutely loved doing it and I've always tried to keep a note of those who achieve it and should Kiefer Moore make a Premier League appearance for Bournemouth last season and I saw lots of next season sorry and I saw way too many snidey tweets when he scored the goal that sent them up like oh there's Kiefer Moore scoring the goal that will secure him a championship loan next season no come on come on be better than that be nicer than that be more positive than that, guys. Uh, I think Kiefer Moore could be a perfectly good uh, squad number uh, squad member for uh, for them next season, and has certainly proved himself at international level against uh, top tier opponents. Anyway, uh, let's just mark his career because some of you might not know about it, and it is amazing. And someone should write a film about it. Maybe us. Um, he had to leave his first club, Torquay, because they folded their academy. Then he started his career for Truro and Dorchester in the Conference South. Then he got a move all the way up to the Championship. So up, what, four tiers? Maybe five tiers. With Yeovil Town, who promptly suffered a double relegation with Kiefer at the helm. He moved to, I'm not joking here, Viking Stavanger in Norway. Wasn't there for very long. Moved back to Forest Green in the National League at the time, where he made his first three appearances as a centre-back for Forest Green. He missed the Forest Green playoff final, which they lost because he ruptured his appendix a week before. The next season starts, they're in the National League, and he's not really first choice at that time. He gets sent to his first club, Torquay, on loan for a month and scores five goals in four games. Returns to Forest Green, where they play an incredible double header against Torquay around Christmas and New Year, in which they lose 4-3 on Boxing Day and draw 5 all on New Year's Day. His current team, Forest Green, against his old team, Torquay, And in a high-scoring two games, he doesn't score in those games. Very strange. Then Mick McCarthy takes a punt on him, signs for Ipswich two weeks later for about £10,000, rising three leagues, but doesn't break into the first team. Mick clearly doesn't fancy him enough, makes 11 appearances, but none of them for more than 24 minutes. Then goes to Rotherham, of course, at the start of the, I think, 17-18 season, bangs in the goals in League One, signs for Barnsley in January. They get relegated from the Championship to League One. Back in League One, he scored a lot more goals for Barnsley, got the move to Wigan where he was excellent, got the move to Cardiff where he hit 20 goals last season in the Championship, and then the move to Bournemouth where he scored the goal that secured them a Premier League berth. What a career, what a story, Kiefer Roberto Francisco Moore. We have to try and get him on a pod. If anyone knows him, if anyone's got his number, send it our way. 
We'll try and do a, a, a proper EFL-completed interview with him this summer. Oh, and he's got an England C cap as well. Congrats to him. A couple of notes from the beach. Uh, the most beachy of all was surely Posh 5, Blackpool nil. Uh, sending Peterborough fans into next season with a lot of hope. Uh, as you know, I've said it a lot of times over the last few weeks. I feel quite strongly that they will be quite strong next season in League One. And if they can keep hold of Harrison Burrows, and if next season is just him swingy and delectable crosses from the left... And Jack Taylor scoring bangers. I'm pretty up for that. Uh, Barnsley left the championship with a whimper, getting done 4-0 by West Brom. Uh, possibly the worst of all the uh, of all the penalty decisions this season there, uh, which put West Brom 1-0 up. Uh, and then Blackburn's two goals away at Birmingham to win 2-1 from Buckley and Brierton Diaz were laughably good. Make sure you check those out if you haven't. Rovers finishing eighth in the end on 69 points which is a nice 12-point improvement on last season. But, of course, that's it for Tony Mowbray. As for Lee Bowyer, the Birmingham manager, I will be quite surprised if he's still manager on opening day. George, have you heard who's been linked with a takeover of Birmingham City? No. Maxi Lopez. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yep. yep. I, I haven't read up enough to give you any more information, but Maxi Lopez is being mentioned in dispatches. Uh, Cardiff beat Derby 1-0 lovely assist from young Eli King one of the players that Steve Morrison's been giving some game time to he's been able to have a very good look at this group of players um, their summer is pretty fascinating for me Cardiff M my understanding is that there's going to be more cost cutting the parachutes are long gone for them so recruitment on a budget on top of a squad that doesn't look that strong for the level at the moment with a lot of young talent untested with a manager that's inexperienced but has had some time to get his feet under the table and certainly seems to have an authority and a, a kind of certainty about him which I like as a manager it makes me think there's just quite a lot of variability at, at Cardiff if we head into the summer in terms of how I see them next season I wouldn't be surprised if if I'm honest if come late July I'm quite concerned about their prospects next season but there's also a chance we might be buying into what Steve Morrison's doing. So we'll see about that. Derby's takeover is still not completed. Uh, Chris Kirchner seemed to be suggesting on Twitter there's still a few hitches um, down to Mel Morris. Let's hope those can get ironed out over the next few days. Uh, Stoke drew 1-1 with Coventry. They finished 12th and 14th respectively. And Swansea lost at home to QPR. So Mark Warburton got a nice send-off there. Uh, Eye-catching performance from an 18-year-old Swan signet, really, called Cameron Congrave, Congreve, uh, and that is that. At League One, George, we've got one completed playoff semi-final and one which is halfway through. So let's focus on the one that we know about. That's Wickham in the final at Wembley next Saturday, as in Saturday the 21st, but we don't know who they'll be playing. Uh, a 2-0 win in the first leg, a 1-0 win for MK in Milton Keynes was not enough to turn around the first half deficit. Uh, two completely different Playoff semi-finals, George, in terms of, of look and feel. Uh, kind of the perfect encapsulation, I would suggest, of this wonderful sport and its greatest invention, the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was a, a Gareth Ainsworth masterclass, I would say, over 180 minutes. Um, in the first leg, they were the better side. Troy Parrott had a chance at nil-nil. But after that, it was um, they couldn't really get a foothold in the game at all it was um it was Wickham on the attack and especially after George McEachran was sent off let's remember in the playoff semi-final a couple of years ago when Wickham went up um in an empty stadium at Fleetwood it took just half an hour for Wickham to to get two Fleetwood um players sent off here it was McEachran who the second was just a bad tackle but the first was for a bit of argy-bargy it kind of felt like again Ainsworth said if we can if we can roll up any of their players if we can rattle them a bit let's do that um it's interesting having 
you know, maybe it's partly because I'm an Oxford fan and have a few more Oxford followers on, on social media than other clubs. Um, but I've always got to be a bit careful when praising Wickham um, because there is some, I, mean, I don't feel it, but there's some animosity between, um, you know, between from some of our fans towards Wickham, uh, even though, uh, as I'd always say to, to Pete Kuig, it's, it's not a rivalry, I'm afraid. Um, but you've got to be careful but it's amazing whenever I tweet something positive about Gareth Ainsworth it's amazing the not just Oxford fans but how many fans are so willing to to kind of criticize that and be down on that citing the anti-football citing how boring the football is and all the rest of it and that's you know that's fine I'm not denying that I wouldn't particularly like to go and see it every week however when you have a team who have been on the kind of journey that Wickham have been on with Gareth Ainsworth in charge you can't knock it you just cannot knock the effectiveness of what he is doing. And up against an MK Don side who have a manager in Liam Manning who has come through at West Ham, who's who's managed uh, Lummel, who is part of the City group, whose pedigree as a coach is, is incredibly high. And it would not be a shock to me at all if Liam Manning is a Premier League manager in three, four years um, with a, a recruitment a data-driven recruitment model that's been so effective over the last couple of seasons with Scott Twine, who's a Premier League footballer in waiting, um, coming up against against Wickham and they find a way to nullify MK Donza's game in the first half and then frustrate so much in the second half. You just have to give them credit, even if it's begrudgingly. It, it's been an incredible, um, just a lesson really in how to approach a two-legged playoff tie. And... I can guarantee you that even though MK Dons would have been a shorter price over in, in the final against either Sunderland or Sheffield Wednesday, both Darren Moore and Alex Neal will know that Wickham are going to make it incredibly awkward for them at Wembley, um, as Oxford found out a couple of years ago, where despite having 75% possession in that game, they scored an overhit cross and, and barely had a shot on goal except for that. Um, he's an absolute master of this stuff, Ainsworth, and... Yeah, it's um, it wouldn't be a, a huge shock in my book if they're back in the championship again next season. I also, and this is just specific to the first leg of the playoff semi-final, and I don't watch ninety minutes to Wickham every week. I I didn't find it bad to watch at all that first leg. I was I was pretty enthralled about about the way that they approached the game uh, and the way that they attacked and the way that they you know it. I saw a team that had a very clear plan of how they were going to create shooting opportunities to score goals to win the game and did it brilliantly and I thought it was pretty exciting even if it means throwing the ball up in the air a bit more than, than most teams you know Sam Vokes put in what I consider to be one of the all-time playoff displays he, he won 17 of 24 aerial duels against three MK Don centre-backs that allowed Wickham to get the ball into the final third with ease to win throw-ins and corners which uh, of course the one corner led to the first goal thanks to Joe Jacobson's beautiful left peg uh, and and otherwise to get the ball into the feet of the very dangerous and skillful McCleary, uh, McCleary who takes people on and provides a cross for the second goal. Um, MK Dons, aesthetically, uh, meant to be a, a much nicer side to watch. I found watching them incredibly frustrating. I wasn't very pleased with the way that they played at all, and I, I didn't see much of a plan to get the ball into the final third and create shooting opportunities, and that's what the game's all about. So, of course, in the second leg, it looked very different, but that's obviously down to the state of the tie at that point. Um MK had 29 shots to Wickham's two on Sunday night. Six of them on target, only six of 29. Ten off target and a magnificent 13 blocked shots, George, which I think sums up the spirit of Wickham, which is a thing. People roll their eyes, as you say. People disagree. It is a thing. People don't like the taste of it. 
but it's a thing. Uh, and, uh, and they'll be heading to Wembley to play either Wednesday or Sunderland, which is perfectly poised. Um, I will be making no predictions about the second leg because by the time you listen, it might have already happened. The first leg was terrible for about 40 minutes. Um, and then Sunderland were much the better side from 40 till... 75 and took the lead Stewart uh, seizing upon a, a bad touch and slow play from Hutchinson to finish at the second time of asking after his first shot was saved by Peacock Farrell and then the last 15 minutes did we see a little preview about the what the second leg might look like Wednesday started to play a bit and apply some pressure to Sunderland who were protecting their lead and did so um, it'd be interesting to see how that one plays out but one thing I'll bring up about Wickham heading into the final is there's quite a lot of talk about them not being as effective away from Adams Park as they are at Adams Park, and that may be hurting them on the hashtag Big Wembley pitch. But their away record this season, over 23 games, was 36 points and a plus 11 goal difference. Sunderland's was 33 points and a minus 4 goal difference away from home. And Sheffield Wednesday's was 32 points and a minus 2 goal difference away from home. So that's not backed up with reality this season. Wickham were, were better away from home than the than the uh, two potential opponents that they have, which could be of interest. Uh, lastly, for MK, pretty galling to go into final day thinking that the automatics were possible and then to be dumped out of the playoffs a week later. But uh, I'll, I'll give the final word to Matt McGinn, who's on NTT20 squad, uh, MK fan, saying the overwhelming emotion now is, is pride and a sense that it's been a really fun team to watch. And I think, as I said to, to someone else the other day, outside of achieving promotion let's say I think objective two for any fan any season is to enjoy watching their team uh, and that's been achieved let's not forget they lost their manager the week the season started then in January they lost Matt O'Reilly to Celtic Max Waters back to Cardiff and Kioso back to Luton um, and they just carried on and they had a fantastic season now Scott Twine and Harry Darling are expected to attract strong interest of course Liam Manning potentially might do as well for me Liam Sweeting, the director of football, is just as important as those. And with him in position, as as long as he's not trying to get poached by, by teams higher up in the pyramid, there's every chance with Sweeting pulling the strings that the next manager will fit the bill, just like Liam Manning did. There's every chance that with him in position, the summer signings will fit the bill, just like Scott Twine and Harry Darling did. Um, and as Matt wrote, they could be in a strong position financially in League One because Twine and Darling could bring in some million pounds, shall we say. O'Reilly's fee is in the bank. Reese Healy's promotion with Toulouse is good news for them financially, and he might be highly sought after. And apparently there's some long-awaited Delhi Alley dividends incoming as well. So lots to be optimistic about for MK. In League Two, George, absolute bedlam for the third automatic promotion spot. And it's going to take some time to sift through, so uh, bear with us. But if I had said to you a few months back, that we'd have a final day where two teams go into it level on points with one automatic spot to get, where one of them would have a five-goal goal difference advantage, that both teams would win their matches on final day, and the team with the goal difference advantage would be 3-0 up after 20 minutes and not be automatically promoted. You'd have said some stuff I had to, I'd, have had, I'd have had to edit out of the podcast. Let's put it that way. Um, I said, I said when Fraser Horsfall nodded in at the back post to make it 2-0, I foolishly said the words to Colin and Danny, ah, all right, it's done. Was it done? It wasn't done. No. And that's what, you know, it, yes, it's a five-goal swing. It's a seven-goal swing. It was a seven-goal swing in Brissa Rovers' favour from that moment on. Because at 2-0, Gasper 0-0, at home, um, 
you know, for, for context's sake, Bristol Rovers were, were 10 on to win this game. Um, that is the shortest price I've ever seen any team be. Uh, apologies for, you know, that I know a lot of people aren't gamblers here, but I'm purely using this as an illustrative point in terms of probability. Uh, I've never seen a, a team that short um, to win a League 2 game before, and that is indicative of a couple of things. Um, yeah, a bit of a glutton for punishment here. I'm not trying to upset anybody when I say this, Northampton fans or Bristol Rovers fans, purely from a neutral's point of view. You know, Cobblers fans have been keen to point out um, that um, Scunthorpe's team is very weak, and that they feel there's been some kind of foul play there. There's even been suggestions that Ryan Lofts, that Scunthorpe would do more cash from Ryan Lofts' sale if Bristol Rivers went up. So it was in their interests to put in a, a weakened team. What I would say to that, and what's really important, is that this wasn't a 10 wholesale changes from Scunthorpe going into this game. Uh, since Scunthorpe's relegation, Keith Hill very much took the point of view that senior pros who'd been um, played a big part in their relegation season were basically turfed out of the club uh, and were no longer training with the club and were not really going to be considered for first team football uh, they drew one all against Hartlepool in the game before this one um, there were only two changes made from that team into this team one of which was Jai Rowe being recalled back to the side who has been playing all season and despite being fairly youthful is a senior player Jai Rowe sorry <laughs> I don't think you know for 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 gas fans who spent the last 48 hours saying that I'm a salty Oxford fan who hates them. I, I don't think there's any um, case here, apart from the fixture list falling favourably for Bristol Rovers, where they were able to play a relegated side on final day. It is um, It is just, if you are looking at it through what colour did Northampton play in specifically, burgundy <laughs> tinted glasses, Yeah, there's a piece on the EFL rules that just, doesn't read well when you're looking at it a certain way and that is section 5 fixtures 24 requirement to play full strength sides in league matches and then the next clause each club shall play its full strength in all matches played under the auspices of the league unless some satisfactory reason is given I suppose those last few words might be the most important ones here would the EFL consider uh, Keith Hill's suggestion that he has been playing the kids for the last few weeks because he might need them next season and he won't need the senior pros whose contracts are up, who won't be joining Scunthorpe in the National League. Maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough. It also, also says like, it also says from the fourth Thursday in March, any team sheet for a league game should include at least 10 outfield players who featured on the team sheet for the league game before clearly that happened. Scunthorpe's average age of their starters was, was 20. There was a 17-year-old, three 18-year-olds, three 19-year-olds, the 20-year-old Gyro, uh, you are the reason that I breathe, you are the reason that I still believe, his full name, uh, a 24-year-old and two 25-year-olds. It's um, It was, well, I was going to say a perfect storm, but I suppose there are other words to describe it if you're a Northampton Town fan. And <laughs> yeah, and it was 2-0 it was, it was at half-time. It was just, you know, it didn't look like the sort of football match that takes place in the EFL, does it? And that's because of the perfect storm. And I think we can also say here as well that before the team was kind of that the changes were made, Scunthorpe lost five one at Salford, four nil at home to Mansfield, and three nil away at Lake Norian. Like the the form improved <laughs> when this team played. Suddenly, you know, they got points against at home against Hartlepool and Stevenage, and only lost by a single goal at, at Bradford. So, I, I completely understand. I'm gonna you know make myself a villain with both sets of fans in a second. I completely understand why Northampton fans were incredibly frustrated having a Bristol Rovers playing against a side full of kids of a team in 24th. But this Scunthorpe side were, were, were heinous either way. 
And um, I, I don't think there's any foul play going on here at all because it wasn't the case where having played a seniors team for the previous weeks, they suddenly decided to, to play a youth, a youth team because that would have been a breach of rules. Similarly, on, on the flip side of this, I think Northampton fans can feel aggrieved at the fact that Bristol Rovers played the last 10 minutes knowing what was needed. There, for context sake, there was a, a the seventh goal went in. A, a few, and it is a few, Bristol Rovers fans ran onto the pitch. Um, there have been some allegations about one of them punching the Scunthorpe keeper as well. Uh, the referee took the players off, which seemed wholly unnecessary. Charles Breakspear, again, making headlines for himself. And that meant that Northampton played out the, the last 10 minutes of the game Um effectively before Bristol Rovers. So when they hadn't scored, Bristol Rovers came out for that last 10 minutes knowing that a 7-0 win would be enough to, to, to make them get promoted. I don't necessarily think that in itself had a, mass, a massive part to play. You know, there was one second and Danny was like, you can't do that. And I, I agreed with him where a Bristol Rovers player took the ball to the corner straight after the restart. That was one moment. And for the rest of the, the kind of seven or eight minutes, Bristol Rovers did look to attack and they created another couple of opportunities. I am not saying that it was... Again, any foul play on Bristol Rovers' part, uh, uh, Joey Barton and plenty of the players were telling the, the fans to get off the pitch and encouraging not, them not to do it again. All I'm saying is that on final day, for Cobblers, you know, say Cobblers had scored a 94th minute winner, which they didn't, uh, to make it 4-1. Hoskins had a little opening at the back he post, did, you know. He did, and it was a great save. And if, But if that goes in, rather than being the goal that sent them up, suddenly that would give Joey Barton's side, it would have given Joey Barton's side the impetus to go out and get another goal, knowing that eight would have made it would have made it right. Okay, I'm going to put a, put a pin in that just because I got a lot of... It's been too long since I've seen a fan base don't, slagging don't, you off. It was great to see. I've missed that. Don't do what Colin did, because I was meant to then, on Saturday, I was meant to then, off the back of saying that, meant to give Bristol Rovers massive credit, but I wasn't afforded the chance to do so. So... As I say, I don't. I, I think Cobblers fans have overreacted in terms of the, the team selection. I think they have absolute reason to feel frustrated that due to the actions of a couple of moronic fans, um, the two teams weren't playing on a level playing field for the last 10 minutes. I don't think it probably impacted the game or the, the game at Bristol Rovers, although it could have done. But what we have to say, and on a positive note, and hopefully me showing that I'm not just... A, a, I mean, one fan said I was a salty Oxford fan because of the cup defeat. I... I'd forgotten about the cup defeat. Um, <laughs> Bristol Rovers were unbelievable. Like, they were unbelievable in the 7-0 win. I mean, to be any side, I mean, Joey Barton said it himself, 7-0 isn't a normal scoreline. To go and beat any team 7-0 is a, a massive, massive achievement. And frankly, it could have been more. You know, they had 19 corners in the game. They were just throwing men relentlessly forward, creating brilliant opportunities. And there was just a massive sense of belief um, throughout the second half that they were able to do it and uh, and completely fitting that Elliot Anderson, who's been a star player for them in the second half of the season, was the man to score the header to get the seventh goal as well. Um, it could have been more, frankly, on, on the day. And You, you know, know how we laugh about managers saying, like, could have been six or seven when they've won, like, three Could have been 12. Yeah, what, what's the equivalent here? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it, I mean, it feasibly could have been more. Um, and, you know, to... To, to go into a game, especially knowing that, that Northampton were ahead, you know, they went into that game probably hoping that a 5-0 win could have done it for them. Uh, if Northampton won by a solitary goal, instead it was seven. And um, and yeah, and for, for Joey Barton, who got so much stick in the first couple of months of the season, and, and rightly so, given how poor the performances were after relegation, uh, he kept saying at the time, I've told those players we're going to get promoted. We are going for automatic promotion, even when they were down in the bottom half of the table. Um, it, it is truly incredible what they've done and and uh, 
we've been given some stick before in the past for saying that relegation can often be the best thing for a club. I think Bristol Rovers are, are definitely a case of that, where they returned to League One just in a far, far better place than when they left 12 months ago. You know, I think they'll be a force in League One next season, personally. I think their squad, you know, keeping Anderson is going to be very difficult. I'm sure there will be interest from championship clubs to take them on loan next season. Um, but it feels like Joey Barton is building something there at the moment where even at the start of the season, we had Bristol Rovers fans saying that they weren't happy with him being in charge. Some even saying they weren't going to go to a game whilst he was in charge. You look at the scenes at the end of that, uh, at the, the Mem, at the end of the game on Saturday, and that is a club united behind a manager uh, only heading in, in one way. He has got some ongoing legal issues, does he not? Which he are, does. Are, worth, uh, are worth being aware of for sure, albeit ongoing legal issues are not something that you or I uh, generally talk about on the podcast for, I think, fairly understandable reasons. Uh, I want to say two things uh, before we move on. The first is that uh, with apologies to Northampton Town fans, but just not thinking about your uh, thoughts for the moment. God, the EFL's good, isn't it? God, it's so good, yes. mate. And this is just another... Just another day, another final day that goes into the pantheon of EFL final days. That what's weird about the EFL is that ultimately every season is football, and there's 24 teams in each league, and there's a certain amount of automatic playoff spots, play, uh, uh, automatic promotion spots, playoff spots, relegation spots. And so you'd think, like even the amazing stuff that happens on final day. You'd think there'd come a point where we're like, yeah, well, but we have seen that before. You know, it's not the first time we've seen this because there's been a lot of leagues and a lot of years and a lot of mad stuff that's happened. And yet, and yet, it new stuff does happen every year. And it's like, I mean, who's writing these scripts, for example? Who's writing these scripts? Anyway, um, it was the first 7-0. It was the first team to score seven goals in League Two this season, by the way. Last thing on this, Bristol Rovers... Some parallels with Bolton Wanderers, dare I suggest, from last season. Um, a club at the level that was able to bring in some very strong individuals, um, thanks to, to a strong budget, that probably, for whatever reason, wasn't quite ready to hit the ground running at the start of the season, but then gained some incredible form of momentum. On the 7th of December, Bristol Rovers were 17th in League Two. They had only won six of their first 20 games. They then rattled off 17 wins in 26, picking up six more points than any other team in that time from 7th December onwards. And they'll be in League One next season. Northampton in the playoffs. They will play Mansfield. And Port Vale will play Swindon Town. Let's talk about the, the, the title quickly. Let's pay that off. It's been a, a real source of discussion over the last few weeks. Forest Green... Exeter bottling it, not bottling it, etc. Well, we can lay it to rest now. And to many people's surprise, George, it was Forest Green Rovers who ended up as champions of League Two. They drew 2-2 with Mansfield, coming from behind twice. The key goal scored by Josh March, while Exeter lost at home to a highly motivated Port Vale. I'm so glad that we can stop talking about this now. I must have missed this. It completely passed me by. <laughs> well, firstly, congratulations. And it's great that you can eat well this summer rather than eat <laughs> super noodles. Um, but my take in the last few weeks was that for Forest Green, it was quite crucial psychologically that they didn't really care how much 
they won the title or whether they won the title or hold it up as something really important. I thought that was kind of important for them heading into next season. So I don't think I can now go massive on why it's a big thing that they did win it. Um, I'm absolutely sure that's what they all said afterwards because that's what you do, right? But um, what I would say is they've both been excellent. Uh, Forest Green's first half of the season saw them pick up 51 points from 23 games and Exeter in the second half of the season picked up 50 points from 23 games. So combined, a 100-point team and you don't get those in League 2 basically ever apart from Argyle one season, I think, in the early 2000s. So um, an incredible achievement and a title uh, that they deserve uh, and Exeter just falling short. And I'm going to throw to you now because I've said everything I need to say. Yeah, I think there's a, a big... There's such a big difference between these two teams, not, not in terms of how good they are, but you've got the Forest Green side who are who have some flashy, quality, headline players. Um, two strikers who both got 20 goals this season in Matt and Stevens. Uh, two wingbacks in Cadden and Wilson who've been unbelievable creative forces. Ebo Adams may be the best attacking midfielder in the division as well. Um, and, and a manager in Rob Edwards who has come onto the scene with a massive splash and is being linked to a whole host of jobs. And then you've got Exeter, who are just such a an impressive unit without necessarily those flashy players. I mean, Giovanni is, is probably the one that I would argue in the second half of the season has been that, but in, in quite an understated way. You know, he's not necessarily the most prolific in terms of goals and assists. Um, he does have that sprinkling of star quality that can change games, as we've consistently seen. And in Matt Taylor, you've got, again, a young manager who's been in the job now for four or five years with, with in the main, year-on-year improvement, taking on a job from Paul Tisdale that, you know, is the EFL version of, of, of replacing Fergie at United and has done incredibly well over, over that period of time. Um, going into next season, who looks in better shape? I'd probably say Exeter because... For the reasons I mentioned, there aren't going to be many players that are currently on their books who are going to be, um, you know, the vultures won't necessarily be circling in the same way that they are at Forest Green. I think we'll probably look at Exeter's team, similar to Cheltenham, we'll look at Exeter's team on the first day of the season in July. And I reckon there'll be three new faces, possibly, with, with, with Matt Taylor definitely in the dugout. At Forest Green, it's anyone's guess. You know, you've got Wilson, who's who's looks set to be moving on. Uh, despite promotion, given he's out of contract for at a fee that'll be set by tribunal. You've got Ebo Adams out of contract as well. Uh, Rob Edwards, as I say, being linked to plenty of jobs. Um, the likes of Cadden will certainly be be looked at too. Uh, more Taylor as well. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment at Forest Green. Now that they have the infrastructure in place, you'd think, to build for that. But it feels to me like there's more unknown. It feels like this season has been a season in the sun, uh, kind of an isolation that could see the, you know, the sum of their parts being picked off over the summer. Um, but yeah, I think there'll be movement, more movement at Forest Green. But as I said, they've got, you look at their recruitment over the last couple of years. Um, and also you look at the way that Edwards has been able to improve. Play, and also you look at the appointment of Edwards himself. If they are to lose him, you'd think that they are a side who are well equipped to make a good appointment. But I would be, yeah, I'd say that almost um, Forest Green have flown so close to the sun with their, their performances in the first three quarters of the season that it could be a difficult summer for them. Mm. Are their wings burned? Uh, well, the big winners really in those games were, were Port Vale. Uh, Daryl Clark returning from compassionate leave uh, fully to take charge here and picking up a big win at Exeter to send them into the playoffs, of course. Um, he felt like he was ready to come back and I think felt a responsibility to do so as well, although he was keen to point out that it was because he felt ready to come back. Um, but 
Vale had lost three games in a row up to that point and they won that game at Exeter and I think the narrative completely changes about them heading into the playoffs. Um, they'll play Swindon because everyone apart from Mansfield won in the playoff scramble. That includes Sutton and Tranmere who were chasing. They did their bit, unlike Borough and Millwall in the Championship, but it wasn't enough because Swindon won 3-0 at Walsall and secured their spot. In fact, they leapt over Mansfield into sixth spot as well. Uh, as well. Um, some excellent attacking play, which is what we've seen a lot of for Swindon, been an absolute delight going forward in the last few weeks. A uh, quick one on, on Sutton. Would Sutton have picked up the one more point, the one point that they missed out the playoffs with, if they'd gone out the Papa John's in the group stage rather than taking uh, Rotherham all the way to extra time in the final? We'll never know. If they'd had maybe 25% more luck with injuries, given that they used the second fewest players in League Two, might they have picked up one more point and made the playoffs? Probably. But they didn't. But what a season it's been. And how do you run the rule over Tranmere quickly, George? Um, we picked them to finish 11th. They finished 8th. Not a huge discrepancy there. They were in the playoff places, of course, for much of the campaign. And so I don't get the feeling there's a huge amount of positivity uh, or pleasure that's been gained from this season for, from Tranmere fans. How do you stack it up? No, uh, and, and you know the anomalous defensive record, especially the first part of the season, uh, probably only adds to that as well. Um, it was never going to last. It didn't last. I mean, they still didn't concede plenty of goals, but um, as soon as shots started going in at a rate of more than kind of one every 40, um, things unraveled quite quickly. Um, and going forward, they haven't been good enough. Um, I think it would be complacent of Tranmere to go into next season thinking that um, they've got enough at the moment. I think they they don't necessarily look to me to be a team who are well set to, to go forward next season. Um, you know, Mickey Mellon is someone who's got them promoted out of League Two before, uh, but over the course of the campaign, you know, they they have been, uh, you know, and also I think the way the fixtures fell because of the postponements in COVID and stuff like that, their position in the playoffs for for a long time was almost false as well, and you had fans dreaming of a top three spot when realistically if you look to where they actually sat in the table if everyone else had played catch up they're probably sitting outside the playoffs um you know they did okay to make it to final day they did their bit on final day going to a late orient side have been in very good form under richie wellens and, and beating them um but they need more and, and they need to be a side you know even melon's side who, who got promoted through the playoffs a few years ago weren't the most exciting exciting attacking unit and it kind of feels to me like they need more creativity in midfield because, you know, a lot of the talk is they need a goal scorer. I think Kane Hemmings at League Two level, if you are a team who create plenty of chances, will score a lot of goals. I don't think it's a striker they need. I think it's it's um, uh, more creativity and a means of playing which will get him the opportunities to score those goals. I agree with everything that you've said there, particularly about the discussion around goal scorers. Kane Hemmings, who I think has actually low-key been excellent since he joined Tranmere. He's actually picked up quite a lot more assists than he's ever done before. I'm not sure whether that is repeatable or uh, for any particular reason, but I'm looking forward to him scoring 20-plus in League Two next season for a better Tranmere side, hopefully. The League Two playoff preview follows, uh, and I think the Betfair exchange odds sum up how perfectly poised this is, George. If in the Championship we have a pretty clear favouritism towards Nottingham Forest and Sheffield United in terms of the perceived probability of them winning the playoffs. Uh, in League Two, I mean, the, no one has a clue, as far as I can tell. Uh, Mansfield are the favourites currently on the exchange at 3.6. Port Vale, 3.7. Swindon, 4.0. And Northampton, 4.1. So next to nothing between all four teams, which really is 
about as good as it gets, I think, for a playoff campaign. Why don't we start with Cobblers against Mansfield? Talk me through what you think are the, are the key aspects of this in a preview sense. Similar to the championship, I think, um, as is normally not the case. You know, normally you want to be playing at home in the second leg. Uh, I think Mansfield playing at home in the first leg here is, is a massive advantage um, because Cobblers, off the back of that, incredibly deflating and disappointing uh, Saturday having beaten Barrow away uh, by three goals to one and not been promoted then have to go to a Mansfield side who have in their last 15 games at home in the league they've won 13 drawn one lost one the one they drew was on Saturday against uh, Forest Green Rovers in a game that they needed to draw uh, to get in the playoffs so um, you can kind of and and in the last five minutes of that game um, with Forest Green basically champions and Mansfield knowing that a point would have been was enough there wasn't much goal mouth action at all for plenty of it it was just Mansfield especially the last two minutes Mansfield just kept the ball in defence just knocking it from player to player happy to to coast to a, a draw um, so I think it's Northampton basically have the most difficult possible League 2 game off the back of Saturday to bounce back from and and play in the first leg of their playoff game that isn't suboptimal <laughs> in my book um, I think Mansfield uh, are, are rightfully favourites for this, and uh, and I think they'll they'll do it and get to Wembley. I mean, we have to remember that Northampton, different players, of course, but uh, were the instigators of one of the most impressive playoff um, campaigns I've ever seen about three years ago, two years ago, under Keith Curl, where Callum Morton just pressed uh, Colchester, well, no, Cheltenham and Colchester into uh, oblivion. Um, this is a different side, uh, and also really troubling. And I was baffled that. Barrow's all-important goal came from a set piece. You know, we know that Northampton are so good in both boxes with set pieces. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it wasn't Mansfield as, come, in, come into this in, in a better position. It wasn't like as embarrassing a, a set piece concession as as you sometimes see. Like it was a no. Someone stole a little march, and it was an incredible like flicked back header, header. like yeah, looping yeah, over course. into the far top corner. So, uh, I'm not so worried about that like being repeated necessarily. But even as, just a sense of invincibility, you know, can often go kind of in, in my thinking like they off the back of conceding there um they concede so few set piece goals yeah i just wonder so i am concerned that liam roberts is suspended for this game having been sent off against barrow yep. been such a fantastic goalkeeper for northampton and, and i think the replacement is a is a drop off but i also you know he shares half your surname i also am picking cobblers to win this one i of course, the first question is is just about mentality, first and foremost. As you say, getting over the weekend, particularly the fact that they head away from home so they won't have the support of their home fans uh, in order to do so. And I guess I don't need to repeat what I said earlier. I, I think I'm willing to believe that it's easier to get over that stuff, the psychological stuff, the intangible stuff, quicker than some people think so I believe that they will I wouldn't just say that automatically it's really it's because I I like the way that John Brady manages this group and I like the way that he manages emotion uh, and I think he can kind of corral it into the right way here that's what I think I think it could motivate them as much as it could damage them uh, but I'm happy to admit that's just a gut feeling a, a part of the reason why I'm picking cobblers is I still think I think the perception of Mansfield is that they're incredibly strong and I think the perception of Northampton is that they they picked up probably more points than they deserved to or overachieved their underlying numbers and stuff like that. 
I'm I actually don't have a great steer on how good Mansfield are right now, but I'm confident in saying they're not as good as I think people think they are, which is a weird thing to say. Um, I haven't been that convinced by them in the last like six weeks. I don't really trust them. I think they can put in a really high level of performance, but I also think their their floor is a lot lower of, of the sort of performance they can put in. When I think about these teams, I think about Cobblers. I have a very strong idea of the sort of performance they're going to put in here, and I think it's a, it's a strong, dependable level. When I think about Mansfield, do I have a good idea what sort of performance they'll put in? I don't really. Maybe that's my failing. But they had an unbelievable run. I think everyone knows that, particularly with the home results. But that's kind of in the rearview mirror now. Like, they they pretty much lost as many games as they've won since mid-March. That's not just a couple of weeks. That's like six to seven weeks. And they had to play so many games, I think it might have caught up with them a little bit. And I know the fans haven't always been that convinced that, that Clough's found the right balance, particularly in attack here. So I just think Cobblers are, are the more reliable, more consistent team. Uh, and the stronger team overall. So I'm picking Cobblers to make it through to the final. Now, Swindon and Port Vale is a fascinating one. Absolutely brilliant playoff semi-final matchup for me. George, you have you have Swindon on the one hand, uh, who've fired themselves into the playoffs when it looked unlikely with a couple of wins. Uh, so many good individuals, so much exciting attacking play. Obviously, you've got box office Harry McCurdy, who's clearly going to have quite a big say here against a team in Port Vale where he spent a season and barely saw the pitch. Um, a midfield of Reed Payne and Johnny Williams is, well, behind a front three of Louis Barry, Josh Davison and Harry McCurdy, is, is honestly some of the best vibes I've ever seen at the level. But is it too much vibes and not enough pragmatism? I guess that's the big question. They, they have not been very dependable at the back, have they? And they have made a lot of individual errors on top of that. Now, Vale, I would suggest, are almost the opposite. Um pragmatic probably quite a good way to describe them in fact at their best very strong defensively uh, rarely concede more than one goal in a game and 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 at their best do enough going forward to win games but at their worst still pretty good defensively and, and pretty dependable but they can look pretty clogged going forward so they do need to make sure that they attack properly I would say set pieces more than in the other game might be a factor here because that's been an issue for Swindon all season they are a small team they are physically weaker and smaller than most teams at the top of League Two. And they have conceded goals from set pieces at a much higher rate than the other teams that we're talking about. So the centre-backs for Vale, Smith and Martin and Hall, I think will be licking their lips. Uh, and I basically think you've got Port Vale. Personally, I think the more dependable, more consistent, stronger, sturdier, probably better intangibles, dare I say it the best open play defence in the league uh, per the underlying numbers and the seventh best attack against Swindon, who could be anything. Top scorers in the whole division, but conceded more than anyone in the top 10 uh, and saw both teams score in two thirds of their games, which is the most in, in League Two. I think this one's a really, really fun one for the neutral. I'm leaning towards Port Vale. What say you? I'm finding it very difficult here because I think Swindon on their day on their day, at their best, at the best team out of the four. Um, but as you kind of mentioned there, at their worst, you know, you said it yourself, they can be, um, they can drop off pretty heavily. I I think looking in the dugout, I think Daryl Clark over Ben Garner, not that I think he's necessarily better as a manager or a tactician. I think just in the, in the, in the playoff rigmarole um, with, uh, you know, the experience that Clark has got um, it might be of benefit to them 
there. Uh, I think that Port Vale are a side who, you know, I, I think possibly if this was um, uh, maybe Northampton Swindon, I'd fancy Swindon a bit more because I feel like the attacking players would be able to get at them a bit better. Uh, I think Port Vale are very streetwise in terms of the way that they defend as well. Um, so if I had to say one, I'd, I'd probably lean towards Port Vale, but you know that is very very slight. I'm, I'm bullish. I'm bullish against you with with Mansfield over over Northampton. Good. Um, but I I think this is basically a bit of a, a coin toss, and I'd, I'd probably just lean with Port Vale. Would you lean towards Mansfield for promotion? Uh, yes. Okay. I'm going for a Cobblers Port Vale final, and a Port Vale promotion that's my that is my prediction um uh, lastly let's just mention with swindon i mean firstly if if i'm wrong and they win the semi-final i'll still be happy because that will mean it's been a really entertaining semi-final i don't see a way that swindon win and it's an underwhelming two legs i think that will mean it's been a bit of a ding dong bit of a shootout and it means we'll be treated to all of their talented players clicking and scoring some lovely goals so uh, kind of win-win on that front uh, and the last word to Richard who's a Swindon fan on, on not the top 20 squad who honestly gives us such good coverage of his club it's such a genuine delight it kind of feels like our own athletic reporter and he's not the only one on the squad as well by the way who provides that sort of insight into his team um, but it's so so good and he wrote you know if you told me 10 months ago that we'd be in the playoffs at all I would have laughed at you back then I would have accepted relegation if it meant we had a team to support uh, our fortunes, both on and off the pitch, have taken a complete U-turn. Uh, embargoes, squad restrictions, winding up petitions, suspended points deductions. It's all happened this season and yet they've kept on going. Uh, this time last year, relations between the club and the fans were at an all-time low with plans to boycott the club being put in place. And yesterday, on the weekend that is, they took 3,500 fans to Walsall. Um, it just shows how quickly things can change for the better, even from a point where things look desperate. Uh, so I am delighted from that point of view that Swindon get to extend their season what an incredible achievement it's been at you know double quick speed from Ben Garner and Ben Chorley putting that squad together and congratulations to them a few notes from the beach Stevenage beat Salford 4-2 that was pretty lively um, uh, 2-0 wins for, for Rochdale at Newport Bradford 1-2-0 finishing strong under Mark Hughes um, they're going big on social trying to drum up excitement ahead of next season I think they won their last three games of the season and, and they're not missing that opportunity to to kind of spin a narrative that under Hughes they're going to be um, right up there again next season so hopefully that works for them and they can build some momentum over the summer uh, and Cole you won 2-0 as well Che Cooper Absolute banger of a first senior great goal, goal for him. Mm. Uh, Cole, you finishing all the way up in, in 15th, which I think is notable. A great few months, uh, again, from a point where they didn't look great. So all credit to Wayne Brown there, who's done a very good job over the last few months. Uh, Oldham drew 3-3 with Crawley. John Yems has been sacked as Crawley manager following, uh, well, as, as an investigation has been launched following some abhorrent allegations. Uh, as discussed, not many minutes ago while investigations are ongoing you and I are not people that like to add fuel to fire or certainly fuel to speculation shall I say on either side of the coin on pretty much any discussion um, that there could be very 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 clearly I'd like to make the point that we abhor uh, racism division of any kind in any context uh, I would point people in the direction of a piece that's been written by The Athletic, an investigation into this, which has followed the initial exclusive which came out in the Daily Mail. Uh, that I read this morning is the best thing that I've read on the matter so far as a whole. 
and I would push people to read that piece on The Athletic uh, when it comes to the John Yems sacking at Crawley Town and the investigation that is ongoing. To finish, I know we've kind of hit our normal finishing time, but we just want to talk about EFL on Quest. If you'll allow us to indulge ourselves briefly, this show had its final regular season show after four years of showing the EFL highlights. Uh, It has been clearly a huge part of mine and George's life. On one level, as fans of the EFL, as an amazing place to watch the highlights of all these teams that we talk about, and quite frankly, a very crucial part of our research on, on every Monday pod. But also, professionally, and in terms of our career, clearly, uh, George and I have been involved um, on screen for the last two years or so. George was on that final regular season show on Saturday, uh, and there was quite an emotional, George, final monologue from Colin, a lovely montage, uh, and I have spent the weekend being kind of blown away by the reaction that there's been to this show, Uh, an incredible amount of love, which I must admit, Having worked on the Channel 5 show for three years as staff, as a researcher and assistant producer, and now the Quest show for four, firstly as an AP and then as a League One, League Two producer, and then we kind of Trojan horsed it, didn't we, from the inside to end up on screen. I can't explain to you how amazing and and pleasing it is to see uh, some appreciation for the work that the team has done. And if I'm honest, some surprise at the extent to which people enjoyed this product, because after seven years or with seven years in the tank, there was a time for sure where I thought that the mixture of technical obstacles, that show is a pretty insane production in terms of getting the footage, getting it in, getting it edited, getting it voiced, putting it into packages. That is a pretty mad show to put together in the time frame. Because of the time constraints, because of the advert breaks, which are obviously not great for a for a consumer, for a viewer, and because of the passion of football fans and, frankly, the occasionally myopic passion that fans have for their club, above all else, I thought a show like this, George, ultimately could never be loved in this way. So I wanted to say thank you to everyone that sent us a message over the weekend because, of course, there'll be stuff over the time that people didn't like and didn't appreciate. And of course, you are massively anti-gas. But the people who made the key decisions at EFL on Quest clearly succeeded in making a really good EFL highlight show, or at least that's what most people think. And I think that is an incredible achievement. Yeah, I want to echo that. Um, It's one of those things where we've been involved for so long you almost kind of forget um, until the outpouring of, of you know, messages over the weekend, uh, how many people watch it and how important it is to so many people. Because unlike social media where, you know, it, if 10 people can make a lot of noise. Um, you know, I read that the peak is 600,000 people watching that show every weekend. Um, and that's a lot of people. Um, and, you know, Colin's done an incredible job, to be fair, in terms of, of uniting EFL fans and doing, you know, and the way the whole show is run uh, from the moment we get in until, until we wrap is trying to cover the big stories uh, that need covering whilst also giving every team their due. And, um, yeah, if we're in, lucky enough to be involved in EFL highlight shows in the future, um, TBC, then we'll, you know, we'll do our best to, to make sure that, that continues. We do not know if we will or will not be involved in any future EFL highlight shows. So we might as well say that at this point. So let's just focus on on what we know. It has been a huge part of our working life over the last few years. It's kind of been 
our dream job as well. You know, we laugh. I, I take the mick out of you and how much or how often you like to start a sentence on the pod with, if you had told me, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and now it's become so ingrained as an in-joke that I now say it sort of unironically quite a lot. If you had told us both when we were first friends, when we were 10, 11 years old, that we would be on the TV talking about Football League highlights on a Saturday night, uh, well... It, it, it wasn't an option. So and that's pretty remarkable. And we have to thank the, the producers as well as Colin, the producers, Pete and Tommy yeah. and, and Sparky, just for just for allowing it to happen. Uh, of course, our first bit of TV work was with Sky Sports, who we really enjoy continuing to work with, and the particularly producer, Sean, who gave us our first ever opportunity. But it's it's never escaped us that no one else has had these opportunities before. And we feel incredibly... Uh, lucky that we have so yeah it's been amazing colin has uh, is of course the face of it uh and uh, gets so many deserved plaudits for what the show has been uh also if it wasn't for colin's support of us and him um agreeing i guess to to give us a chance on the show because he, he felt it would be a good thing to do i think that made a big difference as well for us so uh his great skill the thing that i noticed most george is that the every set of fans or almost every set of fans think that Colin is a secret fan of their club. And I see it I <laughs> so many times on Twitter over the years and I'm not being snide or cynical. It's an incredible thing that because it shows that he understands, it shows that he knows and those are, are, are they seem like basics, but of course um, they're things that be appreciated. Now, generally we tend to get the opposite. Uh, mostly we get things like he clearly hates us like you did with with gas this weekend yeah. so maybe we need to make a change the way we talk about clubs because clearly we, do, we don't achieve what colin achieves um but he talked about trying to show in his in his sort of uh, closing monologue just trying to show what he called basic respect in terms of the coverage for each of the 72 teams and of course that's that's really resonated with us because when we started this podcast six years ago this month um, our mission statement really was EFL fans are not being treated to anything like the discussion and analysis of their teams that Premier League fans enjoy, that that wasn't fair or right. And to the best of our ability, that we would do our best to speak about each club with at least a base level of understanding, knowledge, and I guess curiosity, which is important as well, as a starting point. Um, now, no doubt there's been many times we've not hit the right notes on the pod. And there's certainly a lot of times I can think of on Quest where maybe it's the bright lights, maybe it's the pressure of it all, where I've said things either that I simply didn't mean or I've said things in the wrong way or I've just made stupid mistakes, um, but hopefully not too many. Uh, the production team and Colin had the same core goal and, and that's all that we focused on. So farewell to EFL on Quest. As for the next show, can I ask that people save their judgments for it until <laughs> it's had a chance to actually do the show? I do find this desire to... Do people think you win points for going like this is going to be bad and I know it like people said the same about Quest and now we're clearly like I'm almost in tears talking about it for you. <laughs> so just save your judgments for the next show. Like, Why why do you feel the need to decide already that this is a disaster? It does not need to be. So stick with it. Um, we will certainly be sticking with it, whether we're working on it or not. Uh, and that has been the end of this very long discussion about EFL on Quest, a very long podcast, which I hope you've enjoyed. I love these end of season podcasts more than any. Um, you know, 
weeks 39 and weeks 40, you feel like you get a real reward for, for sticking with it. And I hope you guys feel that as well. And I hope you're enjoying the content as we finish the season. Uh, if you're not coming to the live show already, could I tempt you to do so? It's at the Leicester Square Theatre. I think you know, at 7pm on May the 19th. We've got George and Ali flanked by Jed Wallace and then Mark Bonner of Cambridge United. And it's uh, it's quite a big thing for us personally, but we also very strongly believe that it will be a good night and a, and a, and a, a worthy way to spend your Thursday night on the 19th of May. So please do. Uh, and otherwise, we'll be back again in a couple of days with a betting show. We'll be talking about playoff semifinals, of course. So we'll talk to you then. Go well. And thank you once more to our sponsors, Betfair, for their continued support of Not The Top 20 Pod. Cheers. <laughs>